think my favorite part of that clip is Pat with the long pause and then the no. <laughs> Uh, no, you perv. It's not uh, not that one. But uh, anyways, it's so funny um, being on this side of things, watching that, thinking how we would be so much better in the moment, right? And be like, how could he be so dumb? And uh, and we we neglect to oftentimes see the pressure that we oftentimes put on ourselves for this, something like that. But anyways, hey, welcome to East Lake. We're so glad that you're here watching this online. Uh, we are uh, a church for people who don't typically like church. At least we're trying to be, trying to do the best that we can to do that. Uh, we're glad that you're here, and uh, in an effort to uh, be continue to be that best option for people who don't typically like church, I want to talk for a few weeks on how to be unlucky, um, and uh, that's the teaching series, three-part series that we're going to do. Um, this is not quite level on me, and I'm afraid it's going to fall over, um, but uh, yeah, so we're going to say, what, what is... What does it have? What does being unlucky have to do with following the way of Jesus? That's what we've said. This community is all about. We get together on on a, on a weekly basis on Sundays or watch online or whatever, and we try and say, okay, the way of Jesus, the teachings, the life, the example, uh, the interpretations from from the biblical authors or the church tradition about what it means to be a Jesus follower. How do we live that out in in everyday life? And so, what does what does having uh, being unlucky have to do with that? And that's our goal. Hopefully, we'll discover that over the next couple of weeks. The series is going to be broken down into three different parts. Um, today, we're going to be focusing on kind of an Old Testament background, like a thought pattern that was already established within the Old Testament that would take, that would kind of make its way into uh, modern uh, philosophy, modern thought, and for sure the Jews in, in the Jesus' day would have had this in the back of their mind. Um, next week we'll look at a parable that Jesus taught that exemplifies, I think, this thought pattern of, of being unlucky. Uh, and then in part three, a strategy for moving forward. So that's like the game plan, that's the, that's the here's where we're headed uh, sort of deal. So, uh, here we go, uh, a series, How to Be Unlucky, a series on buying scratch tickets. Here we go. Uh, anyone ever feel uh, like they never win anything when luck is involved? Uh, when it comes to raffles, drawings, or uh, games of chance, specifically games where dice are involved and you have to roll a dice, and I find myself uh, in this unlucky position where I have, have developed all of this great strategy, whether it's Settlers of Tan or some sort of game where there's, there's a lot of strategy, but there's a little bit of luck involved. And I find myself with the dice in my hand, I'm getting ready to roll, and I say, and I say it out loud, and that's the, that's the bummer. The only thing that hurts me is a six. I just, I cannot roll a six, right? And I know the true odds at that point are one in six, assuming I have like legit dice. Um, and yet it feels like in that moment, as soon as I've said it out loud, my odds jump to about 95% that I'm rolling a six. That's just how it works. It's so weird. And I roll a dice and it's, it's a six. And I'm like, I, I should be shocked, but I'm, I'm not. And the funny thing about being unlucky oftentimes is it's one of those things you don't sometimes fully realize until you meet somebody or you date somebody or you marry somebody who's the exact opposite. Uh, and we would say things like, I'm not like surprised and nor do I feel slighted when I don't win a raffle. I just assume that nobody wins these things until I mate, uh, you know, date, <laughs> date, marry, marry, date, you mate with them, I guess, too. So you date, marry, whatever, um, somebody who wins not one but multiples. And you're like, okay, now I realize I'm just unlucky. That's what it is. You're, you're lucky and I'm, I'm unlucky. Because Kylie in the same position will be, not for the sake of a lack of strategy, just, just whatever else, and say, the only thing that helps me is a six. And as soon as she says that out loud, you know what she rolls? Yeah, a six, because you've played with her before. You know exactly what it is. 
that's just how the, the dice kind of work. And, and, and you sit there and you think about it and everybody laughs and, and, and you know, everybody starts cracking jokes because then she's taking me out in the game or stealing from me or stealing resources. Something, something weird. It negative, negatively affects me. It positively affects her. And the, the running joke in the house or the friends who are over say, oh, maybe she's just a better person than you, right? And, and I would say that's not really a pondering. That's a statement of fact, which is actually true for sure. But we sometimes then equate like this unluckiness with maybe perhaps poor behavior or poor decisions or, or just a bad day or good behavior with, you know, the running joke is anytime something good happens with me and my friends, it's always, man, somebody did their devotions today, right? And we've all said that and laughed and giggled and, and we think that's silly, but like there's like, feels like maybe it's like a joke with a little bit of modicum of truth, Right. Um, or uh, my friend Jeremy is notorious. He'll say something like, something good will happen. He'll do something. He'll make a shot. He'll uh, win, a, win a game or whatever, and he'll say something like, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's good to be, a, it pays to be a kingdom kid, capital K kingdom kid, and it's like a dumb joke, and, and we all, and, and, and we, we think, uh, we, we laugh and, and we giggle, but it's, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's difficult, which leads us to ask a question or a couple of questions that we're going to spend the next three weeks answering. So in terms of an overview, uh, here's what it is. So the first question is really, really simple. Why be good? Is it because there is rewards or consequences or outcomes involved in this? At some point in your life, you've probably thought this. I'm going to do, I, I want to be good because I want good things to happen to me. And, and we look at a track record, people who are good, and, and it, it works out for them. And it's followed up by a quickly, you know, relatable, but different, slightly different question, but related. What does it even mean to be a good human being? Why should I be good? And then involved in that, related to that, is why does it even mean, or what does it even mean to be a good human being? If you're a teenager, you've asked this question, Mom, what do you want me to be good, right? What's, what's all about being good? Every parent wants their kid to grow up to become a good person with a good job and a good marriage with good friends who, even if they don't believe the same things as you do or go to the same church as you do or aligned in a different religion or whatever, you would still say, yeah, it's really nice. He's still a good person. I'm glad he's my neighbor. I want good neighbors even if they don't believe the same things as me. And you know how your kids, if you're a parent, your kids have good friends? And you know that they're good friends because you're always like, yeah, you can hang out with them for sure. Like the, the bar of availability is a lot lower, right? Or if you haven't seen them in a while, I said, you haven't hung out with so-and-so in a while. What's going on, right? And immediately you're identifying that your kid has good friends. And you, and you knew this too as, as a teenager, you knew that your parents had a list of your good friends too, because they would ask the same questions or allow the availability uh, for this. You knew who your parents considered to be your good friends. And your, your friends, by the way, had their lists too. And if you didn't know that they had those lists, it's probably because you weren't on their list of a good friend, right? If you can't spot the goat at the table, it's probably you, right? So that's that's how it is. From an early age, we operate as if there is some sort of tangible benefit to being good. Even if we laugh it off, there's something reserved in our minds where it is a slight motivation uh, for us. If, and we think to ourselves, if I could just be good enough, or we watch things on TV, we hear stories, we read books of, of people who have gone to do great things, and, and, and we, we, we hear about all the decisions that they made and the businesses they ran, and they, they're an entrepreneur, and they, they start up all these jobs, and it just feels weird that they started this, and it worked, and they started this, and it worked, and they've got the golden touch, and, and, and part of it's just maybe business acumen, or, or, or maybe it's just good living, or I don't know, but the, there's, there's, we, we, we write it down to they, they were good enough, they were smart enough, they were disciplined enough, perhaps, they were, uh, they were something, they were, they, were, they were this, and I, I want to be that, and so I'm going to really try and hard to be 
be good. Uh, and the problem with that is, of course, it's tiresome. Um, it's difficult. And, it, and when you involve it in the area of religion, too, um, it do, and, and just thoughts of goodness as it relates to accountability to a higher power or a God, or it does some serious damage to our ego, right? Um, so much to the point that it got, it got completely out of hand in the history of the church. One of the big forms of the, one of the big movements of the Reformation back in the 15th century uh, was simply this idea of stop it with the workspace sort of salvation. Stop it with the thinking of you can impress God or get God to love you more based on your actions or he loves you less because of the things that you do or whatever. It's this massive focus on grace in spite of this. Um, that we all need grace, whether you know we're good or bad from a behavioral economic standpoint. In fact, Christianity, they would say coming out of this, and a big piece for the past 500 years has been Christianity is something other than simply behavior modification. If you came to church because you're like, I just need to do better, I want to date somebody who uh, is, is a better person than me, and so I feel like if I go, I'm making steps towards being a better person. And, and maybe you do make better decisions as a result of being here, but like, that's, that's not the point of it, and, that's not, I, and maybe you don't. I, I don't know if those two things are related. I think some of that's just like happenstance or chance, or we sell ourselves, or we build this narrative in our mind in this way, Right? hearing Jesus say to his disciples as they were gathered together, somebody quotes him and says, Rabbi, uh, you know, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And, and he points the question back at them, and he says, what do you mean good? Like, what does it mean to be good? Nobody's good except for the Father. And he's even including himself in that, which is kind of a, like, hey, let's, not, let's, let's, let's push this down a little bit more. And then you see in the works of Paul, who disparages sort of works-based, you can earn the righteousness of God, over and over and over again in his letters to his churches that he was a part of and acted as a mentor to, he disparages this idea of good works gets you anything, good works gets you anything. And yet it kind of still resonates with us. It still boils with us or it's still in the back of our mind. And as the result of the teaching, it basically comes down to good works ultimately do not matter. Your ability to pull them off consistently is impossible. And you know this. I try and be a good person. I try and eat good. I try and work out good, right? I try really hard, and it's, it's impossible to keep that going fully. Nevertheless, we are nothing if not practical. We are nothing if not practical, and so we implore our teenagers to be good. I just want you to be good, right? Have a good day. Be a good person. Make the right choices. We're sending them out the door into the world, feeding them to the wolves. Please be a good person. And if nothing else, when they're not, it tends to complicate the lives of the parents, right? And so it feels like good advice, which is a pretty darn good reason if you're listening to this London, who just turned 13 this week, right? Be a good person. For you, but yeah, also a little bit for me, because when you're not, it affects my life a little bit more. Anyways, and so why be good? We have all kinds of reasons to do this. And a lot of them is self-preservation and trying to, in survivalist mentality, and we feel like life goes better when we're good, and so therefore, I want to be good, I want my spouse to make good decisions, I want my kids to make good decisions, and, go there. And, then, and then the second question, let's talk about this for a second, what does it even mean to be a good human being? How do you define this? What are we looking for? What kind of actions could we point to and say, that, that's an example of being a good person? Acts of kindness, random acts of kindness. Uh, uh, we, we have a chance all over the time to float through social media, see people very quickly, quickly identifying their acts of like goodness, right? I'm a good person. Quick, let's post it. Let's make sure everybody knows that I'm good. 
Um, we, we see this all, all the time. The church, the tradition of the church, has identified what they called virtues. These are the, the seven virtues of life. These are worth pursuing. This is, these are, this, is the, this is the life well lived would be spent in pursuit of faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. These are the things worth living for. This is the vision of the good life, no matter how your life ends up playing out. If your close friends and family use some of these words or forms of these words or stories about you living these words out in your everyday life, I remember dad would always do this, I remember this, whatever, and they describe your life at your funeral and they keep a straight face while they're doing it too, then you have spent a life well lived. You have lived well. This is, these are the, the things worth doing. Now, in light of this, Jesus also offers this tepid caution, this tepid warning Beware, watch out, keep on guard. If you do your acts of righteousness in front of crowds for the sake of being seen, then you've already earned your earthly reward and you've passed on your heavenly reward. This idea of earthly rewards, temporary, temporary uh, 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 rewards versus lasting rewards or lasting rewards versus cheap earthly imitations. So there's this idea of what does it mean to be good? Why, why be good? There's, there's stuff involved in that. What does it mean to be good? What, what it looks like in this way? And generally, we try and be good because we're either economists, we want things to happen to us, or we're religious economists, we do this um, so that in, in the future uh, some, there's some sort of a payoff uh, for us in this way, which is why the next statement that we're going to digest and try and find an answer to or a response to or whatever feels so out of place. There is no training ground like that of being unlucky. In spite of our efforts to be good and what it means and, and living with this tension of earthly rewards versus, uh, you know, versus lasting rewards and, and what, what is all entailed in this, um, I would submit to you that there is an idea that is housed in Scripture that is played out in New Testament parables that Jesus teaches and then can, has practical implications for our life that says there is no training ground like being unlucky, that there is actually a blessing to being unlucky. There's a philosophical treatise, which is like a book or whatever, written in the form of a semi-fictional story uh, of a Roman senator who was uh, alive during about the 5th century, and he worked for an emperor and, and wrote a bunch of different books on philosophy. And then towards the end, he found himself on death row uh, with false charges for treason against the empire. And the empire was failing, and they were kind of looking for people to kind of blame as to why the empire is failing. So they just started, you know, saying, well, it's his fault, and it's, it's her fault, and all this stuff. And he was one of the un un unfortunate, unfortunate people who, uh, who got accused and, and thrown into jail and on, on death row. He found himself imprisoned, depressed, feeling very, very sorry for himself. And he writes this story, and it's this like own self-narrative, and he writes himself into this story about being visited by Lady Fortune, or, or, or sorry, Lady Philosophy. This is Lady Philosophy uh, coming to show up um, and comfort him and kind of address him as he's kind of, imagine being, knowing that my life is about to end. Like, what, is you, what, what do you think about when you're going, there's not much time left, and everything that I've had going for me has been taken away from me, and the only thing pending is the executioner just couldn't make it until Friday, Right? Um, and so now I, I, know, I know the end is here. What, what's racing through my mind is I'm struggling with this. And he, he writes this as, an, as, a, as a fictional story, but it's very clear he's working out his own issues as he's writing this, kind of like a memoir 
uh, of sorts. And so this, this figure shows up. This is Lady Philosophy, and she shows up. And, and it, it's, it's important to kind of see that um, many, many times uh, Lady Wisdom shows up even in biblical uh, stories. There's, a, there's an embodiment with, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs and all of the different wisdom books of a person in the form of wisdom showing up and kind of te- having to teach us something. She comes to console, to teach. She wants him to be good, to become good. She keeps talking. He writes it in as he's te- she's trying to teach me to be a good person, even if I only have a few days left to live and there is nobody apart from myself whom my goodness will benefit. In other words, trying to train us to think it's worth it to be good even if nobody ever sees it and bad things happen anyways, which goes against the grain of us typically being good people because we're smart economists and we think, I'm going to be good so that good things will happen to me. What if it was you should be good even if nobody ever finds out about it? It never gets posted to your Instagram. No likes or up, you know, whatever, anything, nothing. What if, what if you could do it just to be good and it had no bearing on what actually happened to you physically in the world? Would you still do it? And the best way to live life, according to her, she's trying to train him. This is, I want you to live like that. I know you only have limited time frame and nobody's ever going to see it. Nobody's ever going to know about it. And this book might, ever, ever, ne- might never make it out of this prison cell. But I'm training you to sort of be good in this way. The book of Job uh, reads a lot like this, trying to make sense why bad things happen to good people. And in this book, if you ordered it on Amazon, it's, it's called The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. And in it, a lot of the books have this painting to kind of, uh, that, that over the years, um, really you know, smart artists have tried to kind of summarize through art instead of retelling it in words, let's paint a picture of what it looks like, of what is trying to be taught in this way. Uh, and they show it as, this is called the, uh, the Rota Fortuna, the, the Wheel of Fortune. This is the original Wheel of Fortune, so I'm bringing in the, the clip. From, you know, we watch that one now, but this is, this is the original Wheel of Fortune. Four men are on a wheel. If you look closely, they're the same man, just dressed differently. On top, he's a king. At three o'clock, he's a commoner who's like falling over, a little bit hurt. Um, uh, down here, he's like a pauper. He's hanging on for dear life. And over here, he's some sort of a merchant or aristocrat. Not quite a king, but like he's doing better than either of these two guys in this way. Fortune's hand, Lady Fortune has her hand on the wheel, ready to move it at a moment's notice. Uh, she turns her wheel, which represents earth itself and the fortunes of man rise and fall totally by chance and by some external things. In some variations of the painting, each man has a placard that he's wearing, kind of like a sash or, or a thing that's kind of underneath him to show. This is the idea of, um, I currently rule. Um, I have ruled, but now I've lost it. I have zero kingdom. I've got nothing and the hope that I will one day rule again. Again, I rule. I have ruled. I have no kingdom whatsoever, uh, and someday I will rule again. Or let's do a modern interpretation of it, right? Um, this is like our, our thing where we go, okay, in terms of fame and popularity and fortune, listen, I'm in a band. I'm in a band. We're going to make it big someday. People play my stuff on the radio. I wrote a song about a heart in a blender once. It got really hot for like one summer, and then it was over with. And now I'm the, uh, I'm the answer to a question on Jeopardy that goes unanswered. You know what I mean? That's the way that the fortune sort of thing sort of works. It's all chance. 
in this way. I remember hearing um, Malcolm Gladwell, who uh, writes a bunch of books but does a really great revisionist history podcast as well. And I can't remember if I read it in a book or heard it on the podcast, but he described the inception and the meteoric rise of Microsoft and the story of Bill Gates as a kid growing up in Seattle, going to a private school. His, his parents came for money, uh, sent him to this private school, and he, he walked through how the rise of, of Microsoft wasn't necessarily like foreseen. Like you wouldn't see it and be like, well, that's, that kid's definitely going to change the world someday. That kid, at one point, is going to be the richest person in the world. Um, that there is a lot of good luck or fortune involved, that the wheel was just set to the right spot to where Bill Gates had a chance to be the Bill Gates that we know about. Uh, for example, as a seventh grader, his private school in Seattle had early uh, access, and they bought, they spent a bunch of money on the, the, one of the original computers. It was just a terminal at that point, really. Uh, this was in the 1960s. So the fact that he went to a school, he could afford, his parents could afford to send him to a private school, and that private school afforded in their budget to buy this computer that meant almost nothing. They bought it because they wanted to do scheduling for their kids. They wanted to digitize the scheduling process for all of the private school kids. Bill Gates found out that they were, they were using this to, to, to do scheduling, and so he, he wanted to learn how to hack into the terminal so that this is true. He could schedule himself in all girls' classes. That's true. Then he had a friend who wanted also, hey, I heard you're scheduling yourself in all girls' classes. You're finding out which, which classes the cute girls are in, and then you're scheduling in it. Can you help me too? And his name was Paul Allen. And so they began to work together to figure this out. His school allowed him, even though they caught him doing this, allowed him to continue to work on this. They bought this really expensive thing. And how many times have parents bought something really expensive and gone to their kids and be like, now don't you touch this thing? And yet in this school, they're like, we bought it so you could learn how to do it. It's expensive. Don't break anything. And you're going to break anything because you're kids. But like, we're just going to trust you with the keys to the Cadillac or whatever. That's crazy. Like all of these things working to, in this, this, this crazy way. They got time that no other kid had to be able to learn the stuff that they needed to learn to be eventually say, we should start a business. We should make it our dream that one of these is in the home of every person in America. They have this vision for everybody owns a computer. Did Microsoft succeed because of hard work or because of good fortune? This is Malcolm Gladwell's poses this question. And the answer to the question is yes. Did it succeed because of hard work? Yes. Did it succeed because he was extremely lucky and fortunate? Because Lady's Fortune Wheel was happened to be him dressed as a king? Yes. The answer is yes to both of those things. Let's bring it home even a little bit more, all right? I graduated from college in 2004 in Seattle. I was over in Seattle, made a bunch of friends over there. Uh, and then I moved back home to work for my dad in the Tri-Cities. Uh, and uh, like many of my friends, I bought a house in about 2005. After you get the job, you secure it, you get a couple of months under your belt with the paycheck or whatever. I bought a house. I had no business buying a house. In fact, I brought a property. It was a fourplex at that time. I had no business like, there's no way, but this was, again, this was 2005. This was pre-2007. So if you could fog a mirror, you could get a mortgage. And that's the era that I got it. It was so lucky. It was unbelievable. I, my first job, I, think I, was, I, was, I think I was making $24,000 a year, and I qualified for a $190,000 loan. That does not make any sense, you guys. I don't know. I know if you're 16, you're like, that sounds right. It does not sound right. That sounds not right at all. I owned, I had nothing to my name. There was like a brief window in history where you could get a loan like that, and I happened to be looking for a house at that exact same time. And so did my friends. They all got their houses. 
So they, everybody got housed, which is crazy to graduate college and have this. And then the crash of 2007 hit. My friends who bought in Seattle, Portland, Vegas, and Spokane were so upside down on their properties that a majority of them ended up walking away from it altogether. Couldn't afford it, or it just didn't make sense to do this. Meanwhile, because the government never stopped paying to clean up nuclear waste, my house went up in value. Crazy. Unbelievable. So then the question becomes, why did my equity in my property rise while many of my friends lost their shorts? Is it because I'm smarter than them? Yeah, I think so. But there's pieces of it. <laughs> no, that's not why. I was extremely lucky. I was dressed like a king at this point. As fortune would have it, at least for that window of time, I was dressed like a king and the wheel had moved in my direction and I am forever grateful for fortune in that area for, for sure. And I know somebody would be sitting here watching this online or at home and going, you know, you're smart economically or whatever. And you go, yeah, yeah, but some of them like overbought, right? Some of them, they should have never been approved and they spent way too much money and all this kind of stuff. I understand. Sure, there's definitely some of that, but come on. A big part of that was right time, right place. We, we, when, when, when we have been sitting on top of the wheel and our position has been on top, we tend to think that we got there because of we're so smart, right? And, and, and when, when it's in, in any other position, we look at them and go, right place, right time. And it's really hard for, for us to, 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 ha to come to grips with this, like how much of it was me versus how much of it was just fortune. Like the wheel of fortune just happened to be turned in my favor, or as my friend Philip likes to say, better luck than brains, right? And he says it too much if you're watching this, Phil, just so you know. Anyways, by the way, and again, that's easier to say when you're on top because, and you won't always be on top. Boethius felt like he was hanging on from the bottom as he wrote this, and he's trying to process through why am I, who once was on top, now finds himself on the bottom. And so words of wisdom from her, from Lady Philosophy to Boethius, was you're wasting away and pining and longing for your former good fortune. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe for the last year, it has been, and it's not just pandemic, there's like other things where you feel like the wheel has completely turned. You're not sure if you were ever on top, but you may be on one of the two sides, but now you're hanging on for dear life, right? And you find yourself pining and longing for the wheel to simply turn. You can't control it. There's no good works that force the hand of Lady Fortune to turn it uh, or not. It just, it just is this way, right? It is the loss of this, and this is what this is uh, Lady Philosophy talking to Boethius in this moment. It's the loss of this agency to be able to do this as your imagination works upon you that has so corrupted your mind. But you're wrong if you think that Lady Fortune has changed towards you. That all of a sudden, it used to be that I, I got there because I was smart, and now she's changed it on me. She would say this, change is her normal behavior, her true nature. That is just how the thing works. When you're on top, you think you got there because you earned it. And then when it switches, you go, what happened? You switched it on me. Of course she did. That's what, how life works. That's how the fortune wheel goes. And, I, and you might be sitting there going, what does this have to do? This is like, you know, getting into philosophy. This isn't having to do with anything with the Bible, except that this was that he wrote this in about the fourth or fifth century. This is a post-Constantine. This is post-Christianization you know, of Europe. And for sure, for sure, for sure, there's a background of this type of mentality that shows up in the Jewish wisdom books of the day. 
So remember, the Jewish people had um, an Old Testament. They would, or they didn't call it an Old Testament. They called it the Tanakh or their, their Holy Scriptures or whatever. And in that, there was different books, law and, and history. And one of them was wisdom. And, and, and wisdom, these would be like, these are the things you pass on to your kids. Every kid that grows up needs to learn these proverbs of, of the way that life tends to work out. These Psalms talking about the range of emotions. This book of Ecclesiastes specifically that had to do with somebody who had everything, lost it, and is, well, didn't necessarily lose it, excuse me, had everything and lost the feeling of like meaning and purpose in life and tried to regain it through purchasing stuff, through retail therapy, through marriage, through relationships, through sex, through all kinds of stuff, and it just nothing seemed to fill the gap. And he's dealing with this idea of a God who is the only way that satisfaction can come because I've tried everything else. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, so this, this whole stuff, this lady philosophy showing up at Boethius' house, this is just a play on what was already in place from common Jewish thought. Anybody who was around Jesus during this time would have had some of those stories or some of, that, some of this stuff from Ecclesiastes rattling around in their brain. This is, they, he did not create this. He just expounded upon it and made it more reasonable for us because in Ecclesiastes, here's what we see. Chapter 7, we're going to look at two texts today. Verse 13 and 14, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? He does his own thing. When God makes something crooked, who, who, who of us can come along and be like, yes, you screwed up. Let me, let me straighten this thing out, right? No, that doesn't happen. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. When you're on top, be thankful. When you're on the side, that's fine. I get it. It's not God's fault. It's not, it's not you didn't, God's mad at you, so he turns the wheel against you. He made one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future, which sounds kind of depressing. I understand. He's, this is, he's trying to deal with real life. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to provide you with a sense of, of meaning and wonder that actually means something. I don't want it to be all positive. You shouldn't come to a, a church because every day, Frank, you, you, you're so, it's so positive. I, love, I leave here feeling rejuvenated and, and optimistic about life. I, I hope that some days are like that. And then I'm, I want to be honest with you enough to be like, some days aren't going to be like that. Some days are just going to be real. And, and sometimes that's what you need because you're hanging on for dear life at the bottom of the wheel of fortune. And so in those moments, it's, it's this wisdom of Ecclesiastes that shows up and says, don't be angry at God or think, God, if I, if I could only do more to appease him, maybe the, the wheel would turn in my direction. No, 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 no. That's not how this at all works. Fortune illustrates the Solomonic idea that there are days of prosperity, there are days of adversity, that no man knows how long either of these days are going to last. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then a couple of chapters later, in chapter 9, verse 11, it says this, I've seen something under the sun. Now, this is his way of saying, uh, he's going to use under the sun so much if you read Ecclesiastes, and I recommend that you do. It's a really great book. Under the sun is just anything on earth, anything, anything that I've come across. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. You would think... The race goes to the fastest one. And whoever wins the battle is whoever comes into it the strongest. Except that that's not always how it works. And you would say, well, yeah, but often it does. I understand. But not always. And you can't always count on that. That there is some sort of fortune and luck involved. You could be the best swimmer ever and you tripped diving in, right? You could be the best runner ever and there's just something. You started cramping up and there's no control about it. He says, in my observation, the race is not to the swift or the battle of the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. There is always a level of time and chance involved in this. No matter how wise a man is, he may still go broke. No matter how hard you study, there's still a chance you might fail. 
And no matter how much you work at it, she might still want out of that marriage. And that's tough. And that's not fair. And it doesn't resonate with us. And it's not positive. And you're not leaving here going, God, I'm so inspired. This is inspiring. Lady philosophers, uh, philosophy tells us to Boethius not in an attempt to change his fortune. She doesn't show up saying, if you'll do these things, I'll get you out of this. We'll, we'll, we'll make it so that the emperor wakes up and realizes it was false accusations and, and you'll be set free to go. Nope. He doesn't stall his ac- execution. She comes to accuse, to reason, to rehabilitate, and to persuade him to live a more virtuous life. And if she accomplishes her task, he'll come to understand how he ought to live around the same time that he is led away to die. He's writing this for his own thing, trying to train himself, trying to learn what does it mean to live right in spite of the fact that I'm probably going to die in this way. Her stoic conviction is a changeless life, one where you make the right decisions regardless of the circumstances. That's the good life. Changeless determination to be virtuous regardless of the circumstances or the payoffs. I'm going to choose to do the right thing even if it doesn't result in the right consequence or the right thing or the right blessing or the right, right reward. Listen, teenager, look at me. If you could choose to live the rest of your life, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I'm going to make the right decision regardless if I get a reward, whether my parents see it or my friends see it or anything, I'm just going to do it just to do it because I think it's the right thing to do. It's a pretty good life. I think you'll be happy with where you end up in that sort of way. When our culture tells us to live like we're dying, because and this is the, the thing, like he, she's, this is her saying, live like as if you were dying. And for him, he's actually dying. And for us, d- death is so far removed. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks, uh, in, in the third week of this, this series. But um, when it's like live in this way as if death was the ultimate thing, it kind of changes things. Because in, in our culture, when we are told to live like we're dying, we're supposed to go skydiving, right? Uh, Rocky Mountain climbing. We're going to ride a bull for named Fu Manchu for a couple of seconds or something like that. That's, uh, that's our like live like you're dying this way. So why be good? It has almost nothing to do with the end result of trying to control fortune. She or it or whatever or God or, you know, if you're religious, it's God. If you're not, it's just luck, fortune, chance, whatever. Operates in spite of and not because of our or lack of our, our response to goodness. And the biblical authors saw the God of their forefathers, the Yahweh God of Israel, in their wisdom books operating in the same way. This isn't a new thing. This was something that they had in play. We see this. We cannot control him. He does what he wants. And, uh, and who are we? We're not good because it forces the hand of God to bestow blessings upon our goodness or curses upon our badness. And I know that that's, the problem with that is it's really hard to actually believe and operate in that way, which is why being unlucky can sometimes perhaps be, and I'm not going to say a good thing because it sucks when you're unlucky. It sucks when right, right now in, in your season, it's, it's a job thing, it's a relationship thing, it's a marriage thing, it's an addiction thing, it's whatever, and you're hanging on for dear life underneath and you come here and you're looking at me and you're going, um, yeah, who are and you make a judgment about me, about where I am on, on, on the thing, but you would say, yeah, easy for you to say, man, it's a blessing to be unlucky, right? I'm not going to say that it feels like a good thing in that moment. It's, it's not. It, it doesn't feel like a good thing. Um, but there, I think that there's something we can learn in those moments of being unlucky that train us like nothing else can. Lady Philosophy says this to Boethius, bad fortune is more use. And I, so this is a good thing. I don't know if it's better for you, 
to be unlucky, but it's more useful. It's more use to a man than good fortune. Why? Good fortune always seems to bring happiness, but deceives you with her smiles. Whereas bad fortune is always truthful because by change she shows her true fickleness. Good fortune deceives, bad fortune enlightens. Perhaps you're better off being unlucky because then you don't fall into the trap of thinking, it's my goodness that got me here. The reason I succeeded is because of how good I am. God's so dang proud of me, He just chooses to bless me. When perhaps we find ourselves unlucky and we can still continue to be good, then we can realize my blessing isn't tied into my goodness. And that's a good thing. So maybe, maybe this idea of a training ground, that I learn things that now that I wouldn't ever, perhaps I, I am better off being unlucky. Perhaps that was in the back of Jesus' mind as he gathers the people together on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, or as I believe, um, Matthew kind of took a bunch of teachings of Jesus and said, this is what I remember him teaching about a lot and put them down into kind of a formatted sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 and, and says, this is what I remember Jesus speaking of a lot. He would look people in the eye and say, he would say, blessed are those, and, and the word there is makaros, it's, it's basically, oh, the luck, oh, the luck of those people who are poor. And I know other people, like Luke would come along later and say poor in spirit or Mark or whatever, but, but it really, it's this idea of, of poor. Mark says poor, Matthew says poor in spirit, sorry. This idea of, oh, the luck of somebody who's struggling, oh, the luck of somebody who's suffering, for they will be comforted. For they will see God. Blessed are those who are going, who are hanging on the bottom of, of the, the wheel of fortune, because there's a comfort that comes alongside of that that is very, very useful to understand kind of where I lean in this way. Perhaps being unlucky teaches us a lesson that is so incredibly hard to hear when we are dressed like a king. Perhaps it teaches us something that we would not hear in other ways. So no doubt that's in the back of the mind uh, of Jesus' disciples and Jesus' audience as he's teaching. No doubt it was a part and parcel of, of being Jewish and growing up with these wisdom books, being handed these as a kid or being taught these as, as, as a kid from your parents, saying, learn this, remember this, don't forget this. When things are good, be thankful. When things are bad, what can we learn? And do not fall in the trap of thinking. The wheel of fortune is controlled by how good of a person I am because that's just not how it works. God doesn't love you any more when you're good or any less when you're bad, right? There's a grace involved in that that goes beyond that. So next week, next week, if you come back, if you log back in or be here or whatever, we're going to look at a specific parable that Jesus uses to make, it, make me think that he knew full well about this, uh, this principle. Uh, and then in the series finale in week three, what do we do the, with this and why do we do anything about it? All right, that's what happens if you come back next week for part two of How to Be Unlucky.